All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. So last week, um, I or not last week, a couple weeks ago, but the last time we were uh, talking church history, I was focusing on the Eastern Church, um, really to bring us up to the same point of time that we've got to in the Western Church. So I have to finish that lesson. Then my plan was to finish this course by uh, getting into the, the next subject. I'm not going to finish today <laughs> because we're starting 25 minutes late due to... Um, gremlins messing with the technology. But anyhow, what I'll do is I'll, I'll finish with the Eastern Church and then we'll just see how far we get. But, but that being said, um, last time we talked about how you ended up with a Serbian church, a Bulgarian church. Um, and then we got into really the foundations of Russia, like where Russia came from and how the Orthodox Church in Russia developed, you know, in cooperation with Constantinople. Uh, you know, and so we're now getting to the point where we're going to be talking about uh, them breaking free of that cooperation in a sense. And so next slide. Um, so Moscow's political independence, right? So, yeah, yeah. Eventually, eventually the rulers of Moscow will believe that they could defeat the Mongols. Remember what I said last time, how the Mongols were like in control of everything, uh, and nobody could beat them. It's been hundreds of years, but now the Russians feel like, you know what, the Mongols, especially that Golden Horde kingdom, it's weakening. So in 1380, they actually defeat them at the Battle of Kulikovo, which, by the way, is the first time the Mongols ever lost to the Russians. Now, they returned two years later and burned Moscow to the ground, but it survived. So that was in 1382. But it survived, you know, the, the Golden Horde um, went back to its home, and then years later they're going to be destroyed by other Mongols because the main Mongol, Mongolian kingdom in Asia tried to reestablish their old empire and bring everybody back under them. So they went to war with the Golden Horde. They destroyed that kingdom, and so all that was in its place were small little Mongol Muslim kingdoms. Now, you might say, well, what about this new giant Mongol threat? Did they come into Russia and wreak havoc? No, because wars with India and Persia weakened it, and then its ruler died in 1405, and they just gave up. So now Europe doesn't have to worry about Mongols anymore, and this is going to leave uh, Russian Orthodoxy free um, to flourish, especially under the kingdom of Muscovy, which, again, is Moscow. It becomes the dominant power in the region. Uh, next slide, we'll put it on the camera but it should still be the same thing. Okay, so by the time you get to Ivan III, and his dates are 1462 to 1505, Moscow had enough military power and political strength for him to say, I'm the sole ruler of all of Russia. Uh, because remember, you had northern Russia under Moscow, but then Ukraine, which was southern Russia, was under the Mongolian control. Mongolians are gone now. So now Moscow is claiming all of Russia again. And again, just... Think about this based on what's in the headlines. You have Russia invading Ukraine because Russia says, well, Ukraine was originally part of Russia. And it was through the course of history, they, they became their own thing. But technically, they're part of Russia. So Putin's saying it belongs to us. Ukraine's saying, no, over the course of time, we developed our own national identity. Um, so we're not under you. All that goes back to this. That all goes back to the 1400s. Um, so anyhow, um, yeah, Ivan then used the rest of, or he dedicated the rest of his reign to obliterating what was left of, of Mongols. Um, and then in 14, uh, 1480, he stopped all tribute payments from Russia to any Mongol kingdoms and nothing happened. Next slide. So again, 
they were now, now free from them. Um, now, because of that, the Russian Orthodox Church at the same time is going to declare its freedom from Constantinople. Remember, that's the head church of the Eastern Orthodox uh, denomination. Uh, prior to this, the Patriarch of Constantinople is the one who appointed the leader of the Russian church. But remember that Council of Florence that I keep bringing up in 1439. This is where the Eastern Church is so desperate because the, the Ottoman Empire is about to conquer Constantinople that they're begging the West for help. And they even say, if you come and save us from the Ottomans, we will agree to submit to the papacy and we'll, we will be under the Catholic Church. Uh, is what they were saying. It, to, for them to get to that point of desperation shows you just how desperate they were. They knew the Ottomans were close to uh, knocking down the walls of Constantinople. So they agree, and for a short time, now the East Church is under the West Church again. Uh, and so then the Pope sends his guys, his legates, up to Moscow, um, you know, and the Russian Orthodox Church says no. No, you have no place here. We're not Catholic. We don't care what the guys in Constantinople did. We are not under the Pope. And so they rejected the Union of Florence. So then Constantinople said, fine, we're recalling your archbishop, the guy that we appointed to be the, the head of the church in Moscow, um, because that archbishop was loyal to Constantinople and Constantinople back to this Council of Florence. So what the Russians did, 1448, and you could go to the same slide, what the Russians did in 1448 is they said, well, we'll just choose our own archbishop. And they did. And for the rest of their history, they chose their own leader of their church. Um, and then you just jump forward five years and the Byzantine Empire fell to the Turks anyway. So the Council of Florence was a, a moot point. Uh, Constantinople fell, the Ottoman Empire conquered uh, the Byzantine Empire, and it was no more. Uh, and because of that, the patriarchs of Constantinople, they did uh, abandon Florence as well, because it's not like the Pope did them any good. Next slide. So this then, again, getting back to the Russian-Ukrainian stuff, right? Um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church is going to be independent of the Russian Orthodox Church. So the Russian Orthodox Church is picking its own leader, its own uh, archbishop, um, and so what's going to happen is Moscow and Constantinople, they become friends again, but the Russians say, look, we're going to continue to choose our own archbishop. That's just the way it's going to be. In fact, I'll explain in a minute, the Russians considered themselves now the third Rome, and they saw Constantinople as being less than them. So they're an autocephalous church, which just means a self-governing Eastern Orthodox church. Um, and so you would think then, okay, if, if Moscow claims authority over all of Russia and Ukraine is now united back to Russia during this time, then the Ukrainian church, that, well, which was really a Russian church, should be back under Moscow's authority. But it wasn't. See, Kiev still was an important city, and it remained loyal to the Union of Florence. So for a while, they said, we're under the popes, uh, and we're going to accept the archbishop that the pope picks. Um, now, eventually, they get fed up with the popes and they reject the Union of Florence. But since they already had the practice of having an archbishop separate from the one in Moscow, they said, well, now that we're Orthodox again instead of Catholic, like Moscow, we're going to pick our own, barch, or our own um, archbishop. So the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, they place themselves under 
the authority of Constantinople. And remember, Constantinople's kind of mad that Moscow has claimed independence from them. So that Kiev would say, well, we'll be under you, Constantinople. Constantinople is now going to help them pick archbishops that are separate um, from what's happening in northern Russia. This is what starts the difference between these two. And by the way, when Putin first invaded uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian church condemned his actions, and the Russian church is rubber stamping everything uh, Putin does. And so again, all goes back to this. Next slide. So back to this idea of the Third Rome, like uh, what, what the Russians were thinking at this time. Uh, when Constantinople fell in 14. 53 to the Turks, that ended a thousand years of Byzantine civilization. Constantine built that city in the 300s. 1100 years later, it falls. And so it makes no sense for the leadership of the Eastern Orthodox Church to be from a city that is controlled by Muslims. So the leadership and influence of Orthodoxy will pass from Byzantium to Moscow. And Russian Orthodoxy will now become the champion version, really the first among equals of all the Eastern Church. And it was for a long time. It's not anymore. Most of the Eastern Church now sees the Russian Church as just being a, a tool of the Russian leader, whoever that leader is. Um, but back then, the, the Russians were, uh, were number one. And so here's how they, they would say, look, here's proof that the torch has passed to us. First, Ivan III who was the ruler of Moscow when this all went down, he married a woman named Sophia. She was the niece of the final Byzantine emperors. That means their offspring had the royal blood of the ancient Roman Empire. So they're like, look, through our Russian lineage, we actually have the old Roman lineage because of this marriage. So there's royal blood. Number two, Ivan III took over the Byzantine sign of the double eagle. So he's like, we got your symbol, we got your bloodline, um, and it's now all in Moscow rather than in Constantinople. And then Ivan IV, the one that you know from history as Ivan the Terrible, um, he then took the title of Tsar. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, funny Russian word, but I want you to think about this. What do you think this word in Russian, Tsar, is throwing back to? Caesar. Caesar, which was the title of the Byzantine emperors, as it was the title of the Roman emperors. So Ivan the Terrible took the title of Tsar, which was Caesar, which is used by, again, I already said all that. And then he had himself crowned as the successor of the Caesars, and he did an official coronation that was modeled exactly how it would have been done by the Byzantine emperors. Um, you could go to the next slide, but that's still this one. Um, and so the Russian Orthodox theologians would say, look, this all proves that Moscow is the third Rome, right? The first Rome was Rome. And they'd say, why did the first Rome, like, why did the torch pass from them to Constantinople? They said, because Rome uh, embraced the papacy. And as soon as it did that, God abandoned Rome. And then they'd say, okay, so then the torch was in Constantinople. Until when? Until Constantinople agreed to the Union of Florence and went over the papacy, or went under the papacy. Once that happened, they said, all right, now God's done with Constantinople. And so they'd say, now leadership passes to Moscow. And, and to prove that, God then later let the, the Ottoman Turks capture Constantinople and, uh, and that's proof now that leadership comes from Moscow, the, the third Rome. Next slide. And so that covers um, really the Russian church and lets you know 
where they came from and how they uh, arose to a position of ascendancy. So the final thing I have to talk about when it comes to the Eastern Christianity is the fated fall of the Byzantine um, Empire. So I'll talk about this and I'll talk about some theological movements in the East as well. Um, and then we'll be done with this lesson. Uh, and then I can move to the next one. So in the 11th century, backtracking a little bit, which would be the 10 hundreds, um, a Central Asian pagan people called the Sejuk Turks invaded the Middle East. Turks are not a Middle Eastern people. Okay, the people from Turkey, they might look Middle Eastern to you today, but they actually come from Eurasia, like right in between Europe and Asia. They're pagans. They pour down into the Middle East and especially into uh, Asia Minor, and they convert to Islam as they come in contact with the Muslims that were there. And they conquered Persia. They conquered Iraq. Um, and so the, the head of Islam was called the Caliph, and he was in Baghdad, Iraq. Well, he's going to bestow a new title called Sultan on the Turkish ruler. So the Caliph is still technically the head of Islam, but the, the military arm is now the Sultan. Now, in reality, the Sultan for the centuries to come is going to be the head of Islam, despite what the Caliph might think. Um, the real power was in the Sultan. So you have these Turks. They have a ruler called the Sultan. They conquer Armenia in 1067. So the Byzantines are like, oh, no, this ain't going to happen in our region. So they send an army to rescue the Armenians in 1071, but the Turkish army destroyed it in its entirety. The only reason Constantinople survived is nobody could breach their walls. But otherwise, they lost their army and realized that these Turks, you can't, they're, they're not to be trifled with. They're, they're a very strong people, um, very militaristic, hard to defeat. Well, because the Byzantine army was destroyed, um, you could go to the same slide, but on the camera, um, because the, the Byzantine army was destroyed, um, it gave the Turks the ability to just sweep down into Asia Minor and conquer the whole area. Now, this is a decisive moment in Christian Muslim history um, because this is when the Muslims move into the Christian world and really start pressing in. And by the way, just going to throw, throw something out there on this. Um, Islam has always been a religion that conquers and colonizes other people. That is why it drives me nuts that they are complaining that, oh, you know, Israel or whatever has colonized Palestine. No, that was Israel's land originally. The Romans stole it from Israel, okay? The Muslims stole it from the Romans. The Crusaders stole it from the Muslims. The Muslims stole it back from the Crusaders. The British took it from the Muslims, and then Israel took it back after 2,000 years of other people taking it from them. But for them to be whining about this stuff, when all they've done through their entire history is sweep in and conquer people and force them to be Muslim, drives me nuts. History definitely shows that they are always the ones who do this kind of stuff. And so think about it. Turkey, for a thousand years, no, for 13, 1400 years, was Christian. You could barely find any Christians there now. Why? Because it was conquered. By who? Muslim Turks. So it's just... Yeah, just one of those things that frustrates me. Now, when they conquered that land, the Byzantines couldn't do anything to get it back. They were too weak. But through the First Crusade, which we talked about, if you remember, the Crusaders won back some of that land for the Byzantines for a little more than 100 years. Um, but then the Muslims conquered that land back. Um, the 
Byzantine's ability to exist, really after this major defeat in the 11th century, it depended on the West, the Crusaders helping them. But a lot of times the Crusaders were worse to them than the Muslims were. Next slide. Um, and then, you know, eventually Islam regains the land they lost in the Crusades, and they're going to go back on an offensive, and they're going to move ever closer to trying to finish off the Byzantine Empire. Uh, again, in 1176, so this is a little over 100 years later, the Turks will destroy the whole Byzantine army again in a single battle, and they regain all of Asia Minor again. And because of the Byzantine weakness, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Hungary all say, you know what, the Byzantine Empire can't protect us anymore, so they remove their allegiance uh, from them. And then if you remember, Fourth Crusade happened, I already talked about all this, in the Fourth Crusade, the French Crusaders sacked Constantinople. And, uh, and, and took it over. And then the Pope was now able, because the French were under the Pope, the Pope was able to put his own guy in control of the church there. So now Byzantium splits into three smaller kingdoms. They're all going to fight the Catholics, the Muslims, and they're going to fight each other. But eventually the kingdom of Nicaea, which was one of the three, was able to reconquer Constantinople and recreate the Byzantine Empire. So it's almost like the Energizer Bunny that won't quit. It's like they got shot and they've been bleeding out for a long time. And you think they're dead, and then they pop up and still fire a couple more shots. That is what the Byzantines' slow death is, is really like. Um, but even after it's reestablished, it becomes weaker and weaker. Next slide. Um, and so in 1354, you get a new group of Turks called the Ottoman Turks. I mean, they were Turkish, but it's a dynasty change. Um, and, and so they're the Muslim rulers of the East. They reconquer Asia Minor again. And then by 1400, the Ottomans have conquered the Balkans. So they've now made it into Europe. Uh, and so all that remained of the old Byzantine Empire were just some parts of Greece and the city of Constantinople itself. That's all that was left. Just waiting for the shoe to drop. And then it'll be over for them. Uh, so this is why Constantinople pleads with the Catholic West for aid. Uh, but the Pope kept saying, yeah, we'll help you on one condition. You have to submit to the papacy. And the East kept saying, no, that ain't worth it. But eventually they hit a point where they're like, okay, now we have no choice. And that's what brings us to that union of Florence. It was desperation. But even after they agreed, the Catholic West really didn't send them any true lasting help. And most of the people of the East rejected it anyway. They didn't like the Catholics and the Pope. And then in 1453, the Turkish military under the leadership of Muhammad II, um, and you could go to the next slide that's same as this, besieged and captured Constantinople. The final Byzantine emperor, and this kind of heroic, Constantine XI, he died defending his city. So he shared the, the last emperor, shared the same name as the first emperor, and he did not run away when he could have the chance. He stayed in there, and when that wall got knocked down and the massive uh, enemy army came charging in, he was standing there with his sword. Um, I don't know if he took anybody out in the process, but hey, he fought to the end, and so, so good for him. And really the significance of this is the Byzantine Empire, founded in 330 by the first Christian emperor of Rome, Constantine the Great, this Byzantine Empire was now gone, and it was the final vestige of the Roman Empire, which existed for 1,500 years. So Roman Empire, from the time it started to the time it died, 
about 1,500 years. And then if you add Rome's Republic history to that, it had a 2,000-year run uh, before it became, you know, the, the, a footnote in history, before it's now just ruins and dust. Um, and that's an interesting thing to hold into perspective because, you know, we're the most powerful country in the world right now, but we've only been around for like 250 years. And, you know, we're talking about an empire that lasted 2,000 years, um, 10 times longer. So we are just a blip on the radar right now. Uh, but, but anyhow, so yes. So now moving to the, to the next slide. Um, so they're defeated. Now let me backtrack and just before they fell, let me talk a little bit about some of their theological movements and, and philosophies and stuff like that. In the centuries leading up to the fall of Constantinople, they have to deal with their own heresies, just like the West does. And they're going to have their own intellectual movements. Um, so you know how I've talked about Plato and Aristotle a lot? In the East, they were much more uh, entrenched in Plato than they ever would be in, in Aristotle. Because of that, some of them keep bringing back the heresies of origin, the idea that we have eternal souls and there's no resurrection body and we pre-existed and that's all heresy. Uh, but the majority of the Eastern Church rightly shot that stuff down. Um, the East unlike the West, because remember what was happening during this time in the West. You had scholasticism, where they try to marry theology and philosophy together. The East said, you cannot do that. That philosophy is only a handmaiden, it's a tool, but theology has to be in the driver's seat. Philosophy serves theology, not the other way around. Um, and the East was troubled by the West's acceptance of Aristotle. Now, the East, they understood Aristotle, they liked him, but they didn't think he should be the lens. Uh, of how these guys were creating systematic theology. They're like, no, you build your theology from the scripture um, and from the early church fathers. And we, as Protestants, we would agree that you build it from the scriptures, not so much the early church fathers. Although the early church fathers could be helpful, but we believe that the Bible's the word of God. Um, but their position was still better than what was happening in the West at that time. Um, also in the West, if you remember, the center of intellectual... Um, really creativity and development was the university. In the East, it would remain the monastery. Um, that's where theological study was happening. Uh, although they did have a very prestigious university, Constantinople University. Um, you could go to the next slide, but not the next one. You know what I mean. Um, one of the large controversies during this time was something called a haychasm, which you might be like, what is that? It's weird. It's something that, you know... Uh, You've probably never seen it done for good reason, but this is where you meditate and uh, pray a particular prayer. The prayer was this. It was, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. A pretty regular prayer, right? Nothing wrong with that, but it would be repeated so much. Like your job is just to repeat that prayer again and again. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And you'd repeat it so many times with your lips and then you'd stop saying it and you'd just say it in your head like 10 times and say it with your lips 10 times, then with your head and then whispering and then yelling it and then saying each word with special breathing techniques. And the idea was you could say it so much in all these weird different ways and think about it so much that it would become something that gets in your mind with you even having to think about it. And by just mere habit, you're walking around saying this prayer without thinking. And that's what they wanted, for some reason, to always have this prayer in their head. Next slide. 
And this becomes very popular among the monasteries in the East, especially the Eastern monks. They loved it. And the national churches independent of Constantinople loved this idea. But there was a man named Barlaam of Calabria. He died in 1350. He's going to start a big uproar over this because he's against it. He's like, this is really stupid. You know, now he, he agreed with most people in the East that the West is off their rockers for embracing Aristotle like they are. And he thought Aquinas and his followers were the most arrogant people. They think with reason they can master God's being. He's like, no, we got to go back to what the early Eastern fathers said, that the only way you can know God is through an uh, apophatic way of, of knowing him, which means we can't say what God actually is. We can only say what he is not. We can only look at the things about God as an analogy of what he's really like because he's infinite and our finite minds can't, can't grasp him. And so he intended that to be the Eastern response to the Western scholasticism. But in order for him to make that attack, he also has to deal with what's going on in the East. If these guys are thinking they could unite themselves to God, and become one with him through a prayer. He's like, that's just as bad as scholasticism. They think they're mastering God with reason, and you guys think you're mastering God with meditation and, and repeating a prayer. He's like, this, this is silly. So he's going to go after the hay chasm movement. Um, and you could go to the, to the next slide. Uh, and so his main opponent, though, was a popular guy named Palamas, and he successfully countered his arguments. And I'm not going to go into the detail of both of their arguments. It would take too long. But in, in the court of public opinion, Palamas won. Okay, people are like, no, we, we like this hay chasm movement. We like this idea uh, because it was already uh, compatible with a, a popular Eastern idea known as theosis. Theosis is the idea that salvation ultimately is God making us into gods, lowercase g. Not that we become infinite or become like God, but we become as close to being like God as a creature can be. And that's how, you know, Second Peter does talk about us becoming partakers of the divine nature. And so to them, they thought like this meditation kind of gets you to, kind of gets you to enjoy um, a little bit of that right now. Um, so, so yeah. And church councils in the East, they said, well, because hey, chasm is, can be related to theosis. We like it. We agree with Palamas. We condemn uh, Barlam. Next slide. And then uh, again, Union of Florence keeps coming up. Um, when this was being agreed upon, and Constantinople is trying to uh, work with, with, with uh, Rome on this, of all the Eastern delegates, they all went along with the Council of Florence because they were desperate. But one man stood against it. His name was Mark of Ephesus. And he refused to agree to the demands. He says, look, we're not going to accept the Philoke Clause, which you should remember. That's from the Council of Nicaea, Nicene Creed. Um, they're not going to accept the primacy. He doesn't want to accept the primacy of the Pope, and he does not believe in purgatory. Because, again, all those things, except for the Filio Clause, are unbiblical. Um, but some of the guys in the East, okay, so remember how he, some of these guys were critical of Western scholasticism? Not all Easterners were so critical. Some of them looked at the West and said, actually, these guys like Aquinas, they're smarter than, than we are. And so maybe we should embrace their use of philosophy. Uh, maybe our Eastern theologians are an embarrassment compared to the Western ones. And so maybe if we unite with them, we can learn their ways. 
Okay, so again, that was the sophisticated elite, but Mark of Ephesus, he rejected that. And most of the people of the East rejected this union as well, despite their leaders favoring it. It was so hated by Eastern Christians that the most famous, prestigious church in the East, the Hagia Sophia, was empty for worship. Like, all right, if it's going to be Catholics teaching there, we'll just go have our own private meetings out in the street. Kind of, kind of sad when you think about it, because that church is pretty cool, the building at least. Um, additionally, you have the patriarchs, which were the heads of the churches of Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. They wrote a letter condemning the Union of Florence. So it was clear the majority of the people of the East wanted nothing to do with the popes. And the West sent no aid, and the Muslims still conquered Constantinople, so it didn't do any good for them. And once the Muslims conquered Constantinople, they deposed the patriarch and replaced them with Mark of Ephesus, or one of Mark of Ephesus' disciples. Um, and because he was his disciple, he denounced the Union of Florence, and so now the Turkish ruler didn't have to worry about like new Western crusaders trying to come over because the East had no connection with them anymore. Um, Next slide. So conclusion on this. Most Christians in the West neglect study of the Eastern Church. I mean, how many of you have ever heard of any of this stuff about the, the church in the Eastern half of the world prior to this lesson? Most people haven't. Um, usually church history classes on our side of the world focus on the West. Uh, we'll focus on the early church, but then we jump to Europe. We stay in Europe. And then we get to the Protestant Reformation, which is still staying in Europe um, until we get to the modern global church. Um, but for this course, I wanted to give uh, that piece that's missing in, in all these other ones, that we would at least have a decent understanding of the Eastern Church. And we've had a couple lessons on it throughout the timeline. That way you at least have those gaps filled in. I don't know how much of this you're going to remember, but, you know, it's recorded. You could always go back and listen to it whenever you want. Um, but just to, to summarize, right, the Eastern Church thrived even as the Byzantine Empire slowly eroded. Just like the Western Church, the Church survives despite what happens to the political, in the political world. So the Roman Empire fell in the West, Church was fine. Then the Franks took over, Church adapted, was still fine. Then the Vikings took over, Church adapted, was still fine. Same thing in the East. As the Byzantines start, uh, uh, start uh, crumbling, okay, the Byzantines start crumbling, um, guess what? You still have Christianity spreading to Slavic people. It then moves its center to Moscow, once the center can't be Constantinople. Furthermore, the Eastern Church practiced uh, what I described last time as missionary contextualization. Uh, they would let these other countries um, worship in their own languages according to their own cultural norms whereas the catholic church is like no you gotta you gotta learn latin you gotta do it our way the eastern church is like hey as long as you hold our theology we don't care what language you do it in um, so that's one reason the eastern church was so successful in their part of the world uh, another you know thing that we talked about was the fall of constantinople that was the official end of the roman era um, now the idea that rome lived on in moscow um, well, think about it. So the Russians said the Roman Empire lives on in Moscow. The papacy said, no, the Roman Empire lives on in the papacy because the Pope's in Rome. And then the Holy Roman Empire, which is Germany, 
said, no, the Roman Empire lives on in the Holy Roman Empire because the Pope crowned Charlemagne. So you got three different groups saying that they are the heirs to the Roman Empire. And then, of course, you have the British Empire that came out later saying, well, we've imitated the Roman uh, government system. And if you think about it, Britannia was part of the Roman Empire. And then we break away from England. What do all of our capital buildings look like? We modeled them off of uh, Roman buildings, and we actually copied their three-branch system, the Republic. And so then some people say, we're the heirs to the Romans. I would say, who cares? Uh, but a lot of people were claiming it. But the reality of the situation is, when Constantinople was destroyed, even though the idea of Rome lived on, Rome was not living on anymore. Um, and then the final thing I talked about was the Eastern Church having its own controversies in the late Middle Ages. And they also had their own answer to Western scholasticism. All right, so I'm not going to get super far into the next one, but I want to start the next one. Um, let me see if I can take control of this with my remote. Otherwise, uh, so the way you get to the next one, because I don't think my remote's going to work. And so it'll be the, the same kind of thing. This is the final lesson. And again, I'm, I'm not going to finish it. Um, let's see. If it loads, that would be great, but I don't think it's going to load. I don't know why this is fighting me today. It's like a, a rebellious child. Okay, so um, the centers of the institutional church. This is going to be the final lesson. Um, and then we're done with this. Remember, Church History 1 takes you from before the church even started to the foundation of the church all the way to 1500, right? To where you, need, you know everything you need to know before the Reformation happens. Church history, too, is the Reformation all the way to now. I'm not going to teach church history, too, for a while. There's other things I got to teach, and I need a break. But eventually I will come back and do church history, too. Um, but... I've had 30 lessons for Church History 1. They've all been over an hour, as you guys know. And uh, even though it's 30 lessons, it's been about 34 lectures. So a lot of information, you know, and it'll be the same with Church History 2. Even though we cover 1,500 years with this, you might say, well, it's only 500 years. Wouldn't it be shorter? No, because we know more about that 500 years. It's closer to our time. We got more writings. You know, whereas if you go back 2,000 years ago, the information, we don't have as much information. So you might have felt like, well, you sure gave us a lot of information. Well, I'll give you even more when we get to part two. But that's going to be a long time from now. But anyhow, yeah, next slide. The uh, dissenters. Okay, throughout all of church history, there have always been groups that have chosen to break away from the institutional church. And most of what we're going to be focusing on is the Roman Catholic Church, but some of these even started before the Eastern and Western churches split. Okay, so there's always been these groups of dissent. And this is the perfect lesson to end with because it will take us right up to the cusp of the Protestant Reformation. When we study these groups of dissent, you'll see how some of them paved the way for what Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and those guys were going to do. Now, we've already talked about the Montanists, the Novatians, the Donatists. We talked about the Gnostic cults that claim church status. We also covered the nationalistic monophysite churches like the Ethiopian Coptic Church, the uh, Egyptian Coptic Church, the Syrian Coptic Church. We covered all those. So you've seen the ancient 
uh, groups of descent. But now we need to talk about the groups of descent in the Middle Ages. Okay, um, and apart and, and so yeah, so apart from those groups we've already talked about, you had one universal church. It was called the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church. But once you get the schism of 1054, the church splits in half, west and east. The west is then called Roman Catholic Church, and the east is called Eastern Orthodox. And again, all that you know, this is what we just got done talking about. So we're going to conclude talking about groups of dissent that will emerge during that period in the Middle Ages. Some of the, the earliest ones I'll talk about are going to be before the schism of 1054, but there's only a couple of them. Most of what we're going to be talking about is groups that emerge in Europe that affect the Western church. Um, and so I'm going to go over this chronologically with the following themes. First, I'll talk about the heretical groups. And once I'm done with the heretical groups, then I'll talk about dissenters that were not heretical, but they're actually forerunners of what we are, Protestants. Um, so, let me start with the first one we'll talk about, the Paulicians. Who are the Paulicians? Where did these guys come from? What are they all about? Uh, well, simply put, they emerged in the eastern side of the church, and they're going to spread to the west because of persecution and missionary activity. Um, well, some of these heretics. The, the, the first group, as I said, Paulicians, they're Gnostics. Now, I haven't talked about Gnosticism in a long time because it's like it died out. Eh, it, like all heresies, it makes a comeback. And so it's gonna, you're going to have this resurgence. It's going to start with the Paulicians. Uh, it originates in Armenia in the 7th century, which would be the 600s. And then they will spread into Turkey, Asia Minor. Now, again, this is when the Byzantine Empire was still in full force. The Paulicians were founded by a man not named Paul, <laughs> but a man named Constantine. You might be like, well, how do you get Paul out of that? Well, we'll get there. So, again, what did he teach? This should all sound familiar, because this is what the early church had to fight all the stinking time. He taught that spirit is good, matter is evil. Anything made out of matter, you, we're, we're all, this is all evil. And so he said an evil, inferior God created the physical world because the one true God would have never created matter because matter is just bad. So an evil, inferior God created the physical world. Uh, matter is evil. Uh, Constantine said you need to reject the use of material things in worship so we don't baptize with water because water is made out of matter. We don't eat bread and wine for communion because it's made out of matter. We don't look at icons because it's made out of matter. Um, and so, yeah, typ typical Gnostic. Now, like the earlier Gnostics, he said the inferior creator God, okay, the God that created all this matter was the God of the Old Testament. Because, again, he's going to say the Old Testament God and New Testament God are different gods. Again, this is heresy. He'd say the Old Testament God was the screw-up God that created the world, um, and the God in the New Testament that's described that way is also the screw-up God. But there's a supreme God that would not have done this. And so for Constantine, he said he only accepted parts of the Gospels, like Marcion, and Paul's letters. And he radically reinterpreted the letters of Paul to fit his theology. He said, those come from the true God. And so because he quotes Paul more than anybody else, that's why they're called the Paulicians. Now, he's not quoting Paul right. Okay, Paul would never say that matter is evil and that the Old Testament God is an inferior screw-up that created the world and shouldn't have. So why this guy thought Paul backed him up, I don't know. But that was their theology. Next slide. 
So Constantine then changes his name to Silvanus. Why Silvanus? Because in the letters of Paul in the New Testament, sometimes he mentions when he says, hey, this is Paul writing, and Silvanus is with me. So this guy's like, I'm going to change my name to Silvanus, so that way everybody knows I'm a disciple of Paul. Again, not really. Paul the Apostle would have rejected what this guy taught. But this was just his ploy to make it look like he's a disciple of Paul. And so if you were to say, well, what did he believe about Jesus? He taught that Jesus was an angel, not God, not God in the flesh, but an angel that was sent by the true God to show us the way of salvation. And what is salvation? To escape these evil bodies. That, that, that's all it's about. To just become spirit and not have any atoms at all. Um, and so because of this heresy, the Byzantine Empire persecuted the Paulicians. Although during the iconoclastic controversy, since these guys were against icons, some of the emperors went light on them. But after the iconodules, if you remember the iconodules, the lovers of icons, when they won the empire to their side in 843, then the emperors will mercilessly, mercilessly persecute the Paulicians. Uh, but the Paulicians fought back. And they had some brilliant strategies and tactics. Sometimes they won. And then later when the Muslims kind of move into that part of the world, they'll actually join the Muslims and fight against Byzantium. Um, but then again, the Muslims aren't going to accept them because they're heretics. And so, um, you know, for the most part, they do get wiped out. But a small group of them will actually survive in parts of Armenia up until the 19th century. That's just 200 years ago. Um, so the a small group of them lasted a while, but for the most part, most of them didn't. Um, so the next group are the Bogomils. Um, it's a funny sounding name, makes me think of Gargamel from Smurfs, but no relation. Uh, the, the Bogomils, uh, they emerged in Bulgaria in the 10th century, which is 900s. We know of them through a polemical work written by a Bulgarian Orthodox priest named Cosmas. He wrote this in the year 970. And because he's telling us, like, listen, this is what these guys believed. This is why they're wrong. That's kind of how we're able to know what these guys were peddling um, based on the refutations of them that we can find in history. So the group was named after their founder, Bogomil, and his name means friend of God. So they called themselves Bogomils because they were saying they were all friends of God, and they probably got their theology from the Paulicians. So take everything the Paulicians believed, these guys believed, but they're going to expand it and make it worse. And yes, you can make it worse. Um, now, the reason why historians think they got their ideas from the Paulicians was because the Byzantines during this time, by force, resettled a lot of Paulicians in Bulgaria. And then you look forward a couple years, and now there's this new group teaching the same stuff. And Bulgaria kind of makes sense, right? You put two and two together. Now, the Bogomils, though, they taught a more complicated system of Gnostic heresy. They claimed that the supreme spirit god had two angel sons, Satan and Christ. And Satan, he said, was the firstborn, and Christ was the second. You know, the interesting thing is Joseph Smith of Mormonism stole this idea. I used to think he made it up. He didn't. This actually comes out of the Bogomils. He just reintroduced a very ancient heresy. So the idea was Satanel rebelled against the supreme God and uh, seduced lesser angels to follow him. And then what he says, he's like, here's how we're going to rebel against God. We're going to create this evil world of matter. And then we're going to create these 
bodies called humans. And these fallen angels are going to be the souls in those bodies. That'll really make this, the supreme God mad when his spiritual angels now are encased in, in human bodies that, that the devil makes. So pretty much they said that Satan was the creator of the universe. Uh, it exists by the will of the devil and that your soul is just an angel that fell away from heaven. Okay, so that's what, what uh, the Bogomils were peddling. Now later they're going to change it and they're going to say, well, actually now we're saying Satan or Satan now as they called him. He's not just an angel. He's an uncreated co-eternal power equal to God. So it was dualism now, where good and evil are equal, whereas in real Christianity, God is infinitely good. There's, there's no significant opposition to him. The devil's a created being just like us. He's going to be defeated. God only lets him get away with what God is willing to let him get away with, whereas this was dualism, where God can't beat Satan because they're equal in power, um, according to the Bogomils. And, and so he, this, this Satan invaded heaven and kidnapped angels and then took those angels and put them in the bodies of humans that he made. So that's how it changed. Next slide. So their doctrines will lead them to deny the inspiration of the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament can't be true because it says God created the universe. No, we're saying Satan created the universe. Uh, they also rejected marriage. Why? Because again, what is the most evil thing to them? It's not sin, it's matter. And if you get married and you do what married people do, what do you bring more into the world of? More bodies, more material beings. And they're like, that's evil. So they rejected marriage and they rejected meat eating because that tasty meat, it's made of matter. So are the vegetables. But anyhow, um, like the Paulicians, they banished anything material from their worship services and, and then for salvation, they say, since the older son, Satan, rebelled, God sends the younger son, Christ, to earth as Jesus of Nazareth to set us free of matter. But don't believe what the New Testament says. After Satan kills Jesus, he wasn't resurrected with the physical body, but he was resurrected as a ghost with the spirit body and then returned to heaven. And because he went through that, it means now those who believe in him, when they die, we're set free of our bodies and we get to go as ghosts to heaven as well. So that is their theology in a nutshell. They flourish in Bulgaria in the 10th century. Uh, by 1150, they're going to have missionaries. They're going to train missionaries, and they're going to carry their heresy to the West. So keep in mind, this was an Eastern cult, okay, in the Eastern part of the world, but they're going to go to Western Europe and they're going to convert two other heretical groups. It's actually one group called the Cathars, but usually they're described in two different groups, Cathars and Albigensians. Um, and so, yeah, the Bogomols then die out themselves. They get destroyed by the Muslims. In 1393, when the Muslims conquer Bulgaria, they wipe these guys out, but their heresy is going to live on in Western Europe through the Cathars. So you could kill heretics, but you can't necessarily obliterate heresy because ideas have a way of continuing and, and floating on. 
Um, now, one reason why the Bogomils were successful at converting people is their leaders lived very pious lives. And so people would look at them and assume, oh, these must be Christians, because look how holy they live. Hey, can you tell me the way of salvation? And then assuming these guys are Christians, they would tell them the wrong way of salvation. And that's how they would win converts over to them. And that's how they spread their heresy. Next slide. So let me talk about their converts, the Cathars. This is going to be these biggest, it's going to be the biggest, um, what do you call it? It's going to be the largest descent group in Europe. And of course, they're heretics. We haven't talked about any non-heretics yet. I'll save that for next week. I'll finish the heretics this week, and then next week we'll finish with um, the more important dissenting groups. But anyhow, the Cathars, they, they operated in Western Europe, and as I said, they were the most widespread of the anti-Catholic dissenters. The word cathar is just the Greek word for pure ones. It's where we get the word cathartic, just to let you know, you know, which is cleansing, purity, right? And so past, if you were to read old church history books, past Protestant scholars thought these guys were Orthodox, real Christians, and that the Catholics just kind of like smeared them and spread false rumors about them. But most historians today say, no. These guys were Bogomils, just under a different name. Um, and, and the Cathars divided into a lot of different sects. Um, in fact, if you read some church histories, you're going to hear about a lot of different heretical groups in the Middle Ages. But actually, when you look at them all, they're just Cathars. Just they would take on different names based on where they lived. So, for example, the Paterines, the Albigensians, they were just Cathars, but they were named what they were based on the cities they were operating out of. Now, these guys first originated in northern Europe around 1140, but they moved south and they're going to become strong in northern Italy, specifically uh, Tuscany and Lombardy, and then uh, in uh, Languedoc, France, which is like, if you understand how France is, the, is an eastern, like it's a coast city on the east-southern part of France. It was a beautiful area back then, and these guys are going to um, flourish there. The reason they're going to flourish there was because in 1200, they're going to be protected by French nobles in the south. So you think of France, you got the nobility, the ruling class, you got the northern ones and the southern ones. The southern ones were actually very anti-pope. Um, these guys didn't agree with the Cathars theologically. But the Cathars were opposed to the financial corruptions of the papacy, which I told you about a few lessons ago. And these nobles didn't want to pay their tithes. They knew the money was being used for corrupt purposes. So they saw an opportunity by siding with these heretics to really break free from the demands of the Roman Catholic Church. And they saw it as an excuse to steal land from the church. Um, now, the Cathars in southern France were called Albigensians, named after the French town of uh, Abli. Next slide. And if you want to know what they believe, just go back to the Bogomils. Almost the same. They taught that the physical world of matter was made by Satan. Satan's co-eternal and equally powerful to God. Souls are angels, spirits abducted by the devil and put in evil physical bodies. If you were to ask them what the greatest sin was, it was sexual reproduction, as I already mentioned, because, again, we're increasing uh, the number of evil bodies, which then makes it to where Satan goes and kidnaps more angels and keeps putting their souls in, in, in these bodies. Um, they claim that Christ never had a physical body. So it was also they were adding docetism, which was an old heresy to this. Uh, they also say Christ didn't really die, and he wasn't physically resurrected. 
To them, salvation doesn't come through the cross. doesn't matter what happened on the cross. That was all an illusion. They said what salvation comes through spiritual enlightenment, and you can only be enlightened through their teachings. They're, they're, they're the only uh, ones who have this secret truth, and that's why they're Gnostics. It's secret knowledge they claim to possess. Um, and the Cathars divided themselves into two classes, an outer group of believers, meaning the regular I guess you could say church members of their, their group, and then an inner group that they called the perfect. Okay? And to be part of the perfect, you had to renounce marriage and property. You had to stay away from meat, cheese, eggs, and milk. And if you think about it, what do those all have in common? They're byproducts of sexual reproduction. Um, you know, like eggs and it's birth, milk, it's how you feed the babies and all that kind of stuff. And cheese is milk goodness turned into cheesy goodness. You know, so anyhow, so they're against these things because these things are related to reproduction. One can only be part of the perfect uh, through a form of ordination. And then once you were part of the perfect, you would be, you could either be a bishop, a priest, or a deacon. Um, all the bishops were equal. You didn't have a pope. Um, and women could be part of the perfect, but they couldn't be clergy. Uh, but they did have authority over regular believers, um, you know, that first group. Uh, now, these guys claim they were the only true church of Jesus and that salvation was impossible outside of their organization. And they said that the Catholic Church was the great whore of Babylon and Re Revelation 17 and that the Pope was the Antichrist. Protestants will later make the same claim, but not for the same reasons. Um, now, related to the Cathars was this thing called the Albigensian Crusade, which I mentioned when I talked about holy orders um, many lessons ago. The Albigensians, they're going to get special attention because they were very prosperous and strong in southern France because they were protected by those nobles, as I said. And Catholic missionaries did not have a lot of success against them. So remember the most powerful pope in history, Pope Innocent III? He's going to do a move that is kind of dirty um, because he wants to do two things at once. One, he wants to destroy that French nobility that is resisting the Pope. And two, he wants to put out these heretics. And so what he does is he excommunicates the most powerful uh, noble that was offering protection for them. He excommunicates them, but then those who were loyal to that noble assassinated one of the Pope's uh, uh, legates in the area. And so in 1209, Innocent III declared a crusade on the region. Now this is significant because this was the first time a crusade was used on a population within Christian Europe. Remember, crusades were declared by the Pope against the infidels, against the Muslims who had been conquering Christian lands. So the crusade was a holy war to take those lands back, and it promised that if you fought in this war, you'd be forgiven and all that stuff because the Pope could somehow make that kind of uh, promise. Well, now he's saying, you know what? Those same promises apply to anyone who takes up the sword and crusades against these people in France. You know, forgiveness of sins, salvation, and this is a dangerous precedent because now the popes are able to call for a crusade against people in Christian lands. And after he successfully does this, they are going to try this again and again, even against Protestants. Um, so you got to understand now, the Catholic Church doesn't declare crusades anymore. But at this time, they thought that they could. 
So the nobles of northern France were saying, you know what? This is a good excuse. The popes declared a crusade. If we go attack southern France and kill the southern nobles, we could claim their lands for ourselves. So, of course, they jump on this. They, and also King Philip Augustus of France was also tired of that southern nobility de defying him. So they were all in on this. And so for a 20-year period, they conquered the South. And in the process, when it comes to these Albigensians, uh, they were, they were, it was horrific. They, in their savage attack, they killed the women, they killed the children. And after a 20-year period, they actually literally wiped them out. Every Albigensian, as far as we know, as far as I can tell, was, was killed. And so that is the Catholic Pope using a crusade against a, a group of dissenters in Europe. Again, we're going to see this um, later in this lesson, the parts that I'll cover um, next time. Now, the consequences of the crusade is you have a, a, a group of true believers who were killed in the same thing. They're called the French Waldensians, and I'll tell you about the Waldensians next time. They're a very cool group. Pretty much they are Protestants 400 years before the Protestant Reformation. Um, believed everything that the Protestants did and survived. In fact, there's Waldensian churches still around today. And they were founded in the 1100s, but they lived in the same general region. And these Catholic crusaders, they're not being careful to separate the groups. So anybody that's not a Roman Catholic, as far as they're concerned, is an Albigensian. And so they went after the Waldensians and killed them in a brutal way as well. And so they had to move their chief place of residence to the Alpine Valleys in, near Turin in northern Italy. And they're going to have to hide in the Alps. And that's one reason they survived, because you could defend yourselves in the, Alp, in the Alps a lot easier. Uh, another consequence of this crusade is that it strengthened the papacy's ability to punish dissenters within Western Europe. He can now use militaries of Europe to kill people that disagree with Catholic doctrine. Um, so conclusion on the Cathars, they were the most widespread of the dissenter groups, probably one of the most successful. Um, and, uh, and yeah, this map here shows you all the different places they lived. Again, the ones in southern France wiped out. Uh, next slide. Okay, so I'm going to stop because now we're getting to those who are Orthodox. Every group that I'm talking about from now on are people who will dissent from the Roman Catholic Church, not because they hold the heresy, but because they start reading the Bible. And when they read the Bible, they're like, wait a second, there's no purgatory, there's no pope, there's no transubstantiation, there's no confessing to pre. What the heck is all this? And so when you read the Bible, all of a sudden... Catholicism doesn't sound very faithful anymore. And the Catholic Church is going to have no tolerance for that. And they're going to kill a lot of these people and a lot of these groups. And this is going to happen again and again until you get to the Protestant Reformation. And then they'll try to wipe out the Protestants as well. But by that point, it's impossible for them to, uh, to stop this. And so um, I'll explain all that when, when we get to that next week.